Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, which makes the stuff you should know. Um, and we are about to present part 80 in our series on law enforcement <laughs> agencies. Pretty soon we're going to just start profiling like ex-cops and stuff like that. Did we this, We still haven't done ATF or CIA or FBI? Uh, the CIA article leaves a lot. Oh, I'm sure. It, it needs some stuff. So we're going to have to do that in a week when we have extra time to do a lot more research. Okay. Okay? Deal. Well, today we're talking about the U.S. Marshals. That's right. So, Chuck, have you ever seen the movie The Fugitive? I have. Well, then we don't need to do this episode. <laughs> Why? Is that it? That's it. That's it's, what a U.S. Marshal It's is. the most accurate portrayal of a U.S. Marshal ever created by man. Tommy Lee Jones? Yes. Uh, he was good in that. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I know. He was great. Okay. It's really tough to go wrong with Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yeah. What was he in? Was he in... No Country for Old Men? And he, he yeah. has the last lines and stuff like that? Yeah, he actually, if you've read the book, is the main character is pretty much his character. That's why when you see the movie, and, oh gosh, I hate the spoilers. Spoiler alert! When you see the movie and, and uh, what's-his-face dies. Uh, Javier Bardem? No, the, 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 what you think is the main character. Yes. Uh, what's-his-face from the Goonies? Josh Brolin. <laughs> Josh Brolin. In the movie, it's kind of like, wait, they, he just kind of unceremoniously died, and they didn't make a big deal about it, remember, in the movie? Yeah. But if you read the book, he's not really the main character, so it sort of makes more sense. I gotcha. Anyway. I love the Coen brothers. They know what they're doing. Oh, God, they're the best. But, again, Tommy Lee Jones, this is the uh, How Tommy Lee Jones Works episode, <laughs> and he's a class act. And Chuck, the we're, we're talking about the federal marshals, really. I was joking about Tommy Lee. Um did you know that they are the oldest law enforcement agency in the land? Yeah, and most versatile, they claim. Yeah. Very proud of that fact. Yes. They do a lot of stuff. They really do. Um, and in a lot of ways, they're very unsung. They, they have a very long history. Uh, they were first uh, created in 1789. The first time Congress met, the Marshal Service was literally created. Um, and they've had their highs and their lows. In the, yeah. the 225 years since. George Washington appointed the first 13 marshals. That is very cool. Yeah. Right out of the gate. And uh, basically, they set up the federal courts, and they said, well, we need some people to kind of protect these courts. We need some people to crack some heads. U.S. marshals. Done. Yeah. And um, apparently, as far as like law enforcement agencies in the U.S. goes... Uh, the federal marshals have kind of had the short end of the stick traditionally. Yeah. Um, especially early on in the country's history when states' rights wasn't just relegated to like, you know, you know. Yeah. It was a big deal <laughs> to everybody, right? Right. Um, so you, you had this guy who was sometimes the only law enforcement official in the entire land. Yeah. In your whole area. And he's trying to shove federale laws down your throat when you're all about states' rights. That's right. And uh, that was pretty much the, the, the beginning of the marshal service was basically being at odds with their friends and neighbors about the stuff that they were doing. A lot of times it was stuff that 
proved to be unconstitutional, like the Alien and Sedition Act. Yeah. Remember our buddy Eugene Debs, who ran for president and got a million votes from jail here in Atlanta? Uh-huh. The socialist? Yeah. He was jailed for the um, Alien and Sedition Act. Oh, really? Yeah. Remember, like, you couldn't even speak against the government publicly or else it was considered treason around World War One. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, marshals had to arrest people like Eugene Debs for that kind of stuff. So there have been plenty of points in the history of this agency where, like, they haven't had to do very good stuff, and uh, they've suffered for it. Yeah, and uh, the grabster, Ed Grabanowski, who wrote this, as well as many other cool articles that we podcast on, mm-hmm. uh, pointed out that the Civil War, or not the Civil War, but slavery was a kind of a contentious point because in the South they had to enforce uh, slave trade uh, bans on slave imports, and then in the North they had to prosecute people, fugitives, uh, on the run. Right. And northern abolitionists were like, eh. And in the south, they were like, eh. So they're, they're like, like, what do you mean win. we can't bring in our slaves? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, and the, the marshals were like, man, no one likes me anywhere. I'm going to go out west. And they were liked in the west. Yeah. In they, a lot of places, probably. Yes, because literally out west, it was lawless in many, many respects, and uh, literally and figuratively. There would be a marshal out there, and the marshal, as, as you would see, just some guy like sitting in an office in some boom town, right? Yeah, like Bat Masterson. And that's it. Uh, yeah. And then he would deputize a posse. That's extremely accurate. Mm-hmm. There's a there would be a marshal out there, and if he needed some extra help, he could grab some law-abiding citizens who had guns and say, "You're now an official of the U.S. government, and you have to come crack heads with me." Um, that's really how it happened. But yes, like you said, in in situations like that. Most of the law-abiding people are the people who are just trying to mine some gold and leaving other people alone. They were very happy that there was a marshal there. Yeah, a little order for a change. Right. So there's like a little uptick in, in a marshal appreciation in the 19th century, the second half of it out west. Yeah, that's kind of their heyday, too, from what I gather. Yeah. If you don't count now. And I actually found, too, that a lot of states still have a posse, but it's like, you know, the Arkansas U.S. Marshal Posse and it's just the organization that helps to raise awareness and stuff. Oh, it's like the PBA? Yeah, they'll go around to schools and oh, stuff like that. That's the Marshall's Posse? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's a very valuable job they do, Josh. Well, there's a, remember there's the Posse Comitatus Act that prevents posses, doesn't it? I never heard of that. Yeah, we talked about it in the Delta Force um, oh, we did? episode. It's like it's it's the law that prevents Delta Force from operating in the U.S., Ostensibly. Well, in you, these days, you try to get a posse together and people are like, dude, I'm watching Lost Boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Nice. Uh, 20th century, early 20th century, they were pretty close to obscurity because um, they had a reputation for being fat, lazy, retired cops. <laughs> Dim-witted, Grabinowski puts it. I know. I, I love that that word. Dumb, fat, retired cops. Yeah, basically the... the um, I don't know what led to that, but they just kind of lost their their shape. Yeah, and um, everybody knew it too. And Apparently. then, yeah, the the respect for the marshal service went down tremendously. Once like again, the, it sounds like it was a place <laughs> where old cops go to die. Yeah, or to retire. Yeah. Um. And uh, and then the, a guy came along in 1939. His name was Frank Murphy, and he became Attorney General of the United States. And he said. You're going to stop being so pudgy, see? We're going to get you to work out. You're going to be good at arresting criminals, see? And they said, whatever you say, Murph. Yeah, and uh, that was that. Yeah, and they started taking shape again, literally and figuratively, I guess. 
and uh, you know throughout the the 20th century made their name for doing such brave things like escorting black students to school during segregation. Those were marshals. Yeah. When you see that famous picture. Yeah. Um, although I think some of them were National Guard as well. No, the National Guard were ordered out by racist governors to block the oh, students from coming in. Really? Yes. And the marshals were Said, at odds with the National Guard? Yeah. Wow. National Guard state. I feel like a dummy. Oh, I don't. Okay. I mean, it just makes sense, you know, like that, well, the National Guard's going to be out there to protect. No, no, no. That's a big black eye yeah. on the state of Alabama in particular and Mississippi. It's true. Uh, they also um, kind of mixed it up with anti-war protesters during Vietnam and basically made more of a name for themselves as the 20th century advanced. As hippie beaters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so what, what do they do, though? And also, I just want to point out, I don't advocate the beating of hippies. And no. if you're going to send me an email, go back and listen to the whole catalog first, okay? <laughs> Except Hippie Rob. He deserves a good beat down. But not really. Not really. Um, so, Chuck, finally we arrived to current day as far as when this article was written, 2007. And at a place called Fort Smith, Arkansas, you will find the um, National Museum of the U.S. Marshals. Still, to this day, it's there. Oh, really? Four years later. I did not know that. Yeah. And they changed their, their badge, too. It used to be a six-pointed star. Oh, is it? It's five? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, it did start out being a six-silver star in a, in a circle. Yeah. Okay, so now it's a five-pointed star in a circle. But apparently up until 1941, so there's 94 districts that um, coincide with judicial districts, federal judicial districts yeah. that marshals serve. That's right. And every district was in charge of uh, creating its own badge until 1941 when they standardized it. And each district only has one marshal, official marshal. The rest are like deputies and things like that. Right. There's like uh, about 4,000 deputies and 94 marshals working. That's right? true. Um, 3,953 to be exact. <laughs> I saw that. It said on their website, 3,900, approximately 3,950. And I was like, you know, we don't round up to 4,000 anymore when we hit that. <laughs> well, it's better than having a ticker that's like, takes one down every time someone dies in the line of duty. Right. That'd be or depressing. up one when one's born. Yeah, that's true. Or a new hire. Right. All right. So, Chuck, um, you said that the Marshal Service is pretty versatile and for good reason. They have, um, at least four main uh, areas of operation, um, and probably the best-known one, thanks to M- Mr. Tommy Lee Jones, the class act, um, is catching fugitives. And not just federal fugitives, they also support um, state and local uh, law enforcement groups in catching their fugitives, too. So That's the right. marshals are basically just big show-offs. I got a couple of stats here, Josh. Okay. Uh, in 2010, I'm just going to pepper your information with stats. How about that? In 2010, they arrested more than 81,900 state and local fugitives. That's when they're helping That's, everyone out. It was 89,901. <laughs> and uh, as far as federal uh, federal fugitives, they arrested more than 36,000 in 2010 alone. Yeah. That's, That's a huge uptick in uh, state and local. Because in 2007, in the article, it cites uh, 46,800 state and local fugitives. So that's... It's close to double. Yeah. Yeah. Good work. Yes. Well, part of that was Operation Falcon. Yeah. W- that was mainly to uh, to nab unregistered sex offenders, right? It depends. Like, it's it's, it's a fugitive capture operation. Um, and in 2007, they were up to the end of phase three. Um, 
And I think each phase would be a different part of the country and then maybe a different emphasis. So Falcon 3 in 2007 was launched to catch people who were supposed to register as sex offenders but never did, making them fugitives Right in the eastern U.S. And it nabbed 10,733 felons. Wow. Sex offenders. The, the people we do not want on the street. Just a few. And gang members. More than 4,800 gang members. And I think that's a part of Operation Falcon, right? I believe so. Gang stuff? Yeah. Uh, because ICE is responsible for um, immigration. Right. So, although the um, Marshal Service have four outposts, Mexico, Jamaica, and a couple other places in the Caribbean. Yeah, Colombia and Dominican Republic. Okay. I think that's all drug-related. That's just a guess. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so they, they, they would, and they do arrest people in those countries. Um, one of the guys on their most wanted list was arrested in Mexico. Um, so they can operate outside of the country, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't have anything to do with immigration. Although I can't see them not working with ICE. They might. Yeah. I could it see seems that. like they will work with whoever asks for their help. Right. You know, they're like, sure, we can send a team down there. Um, one of the other uh, big aspects of their job is prisoner transport, because they're they're in charge of um, basically looking over the court system, the federal court system, anything that has to do with protecting a courtroom, transporting a prisoner, the keeping the security aspect of the ju- the federal judicial system mm-hmm. functioning. That's what they do, and yeah. a big part of that is shuffling prisoners from place to place. Yeah, and they do that via the Justice Prisoner and Alien Transportation System, and that is literally their own bus line, airline, van line, whatever they need. If you've seen the m- pretty bad movie Con Air, yeah, that was those were marshals. And uh, every day they have uh, 63,000, roughly 63,000 prisoners in custody. And then they transport these dudes and ladies, I guess, all over the all over the place on planes. Yeah, um, no gra- beverage service. I don't, I don't gra- think. I'll bet planes. not. I'll bet not. And I'll bet those um, like the stuff on the seat backs uh, where you rest your head. I'll oh bet yeah. Those haven't been washed in a while. No in-flight movie. No, it's no frills. Exactly is what it is. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you want to see a very frill-laden aircraft, you should see Airport seventy-eight. I think. The third one. Uh, did you watch that recently? Yeah, that is awesome. You know what I watched the other day? What? Towering Inferno. I've got that in my um, instant queue. It's pretty good, man. i got to say, like, it holds, it's way too long, first of all. It's like two and a half hours long, and it didn't need to be. Yeah. Like, they should have cut out a lot of the plot points. But um, as far as just like, uh, oh, my God, what's going to happen? It was pretty, it ranks still. Suspense? Yeah, that's, that's the word. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's among it's among the best of the '70s disaster flicks, right? Yeah, and you got Paul Newman and Steve McQueen in the same movie. That's just yeah. off the the tough guy meter. Yeah. Well, I I didn't have my full attention last night, so I didn't watch that. Instead, I punished uh, me and Yumi with um, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. That's so, that's so funny. We're on this kick of old disaster movies. Yeah, it's weird. Unbeknownst. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had no idea until just this moment. Towering Inferno. Watch it. Airport seventy-eight. Okay. Okay. Um. So, Chuck, I think it's 78. There's also 77. Yeah, there's a few. 70, 75, 77. I think it's 77. Okay. It's the one where Jimmy Stewart owns a luxury airliner and is flying these people who end up beneath the surface of the Atlantic in the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. And you know who was in Towering Inferno? Who? Fred Astaire. Yeah. One of his last movies. And he actually, there's one small scene where he's da- dancing and 
my eyes were just like, oh, my God, Fred Astaire's dancing. Well, apparently in the Towering Inferno, they had like 50-something sets, and all but eight of them were like, went up in flames. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez, that's a sidetrack. That's much more interesting than U.S. Marshals, I think. So they transport prisoners, they capture, capture fugitives, and then um, we, we did a whole podcast on a witness security program, WITSEC, the Witness Protection Program. Um, but we'll talk about it briefly here. Basically, it was conceived in 1970, and since then, the Marshal Service, which uh, basically um, hides federal witnesses yeah. and uh, keeps them hidden, gives them new lives, um, or just you know keeps them in safe houses during trial, depending on the arrangement, uh, they say that since 1970, since the beginning, not one witness has been harmed if they follow the rules. Right. Plenty of witnesses have been waxed. Yeah. But... They That's because they went the to a movie or something with, you know, the they could clearly Look at me. I'm Jimmy Two Legs. <laughs> uh, Josh, they also, we, we said protect the courts. They still do that today. Uh, more than 2,000 judges and 400 courthouses nationwide. They uh, install security systems. They provide personal escort and watch over high-risk trials. And uh, there's also a few other people they help transport. Um, I think... Uh, all federal judges, U.S. attorneys, uh, personnel, and jurors, um, they provide protection for, and they transport um, the Supreme Court justices outside of Washington, D.C. On their annual picnic. I guess so. And I guess in D.C., I'm, I'm not sure who it is. It may be Secret Service or something. Or maybe just, I don't know, local local marshals. Okay. And we should point that out. Marshal is a term that's used... A lot, but unless it, you are a U.S. Marshal, then you're not part of the U.S. MS. Okay. Like, you can be a Marshal, like some countries have Marshals as right, like, right. Uh, military ranks. Or Air Marshals are not related to um, the Marshal Service. That surprised me. Yeah, I thought they were too. I thought they were U.S. Marshals. They are not. Um, also, we should say, if you are a, if you're a drug dealer and you get popped for a beef by the feds <laughs> and they take your stuff, it's the Marshals who have it. <laughs> They're in charge of asset seizure. Yes, and distribution, too, like selling off stuff to give reparation to, to families and victims and stuff. Or to fund the marshal service. Or to fund the marshal service. True. Annual picnic. Uh, what else can they do, Josh? Uh, they have a SWAT group, the special operations group, which basically does the same thing that SWAT teams do, but for federal stuff. Okay, that makes sense. And um, they once arrested... Arrested, I'm making air quotes, a fleet of um, 18th century shipwrecks off the coast of Rhode Island at the request of the governor um, to protect it, to take it in, take these into federal custody and protect them from vandals and um, salvagers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I got a stat on the assets. They currently manage 18,000 assets valued at 3.9 billion bucks. That's a lot of cigarette boats. And in 2010, paid um, victims of crimes about $350 million. So they do use it for reparations, huh? Some of it. Huh. Um, they also made pay- payments to state and lo- local law enforcement agencies of $580 million. So maybe they repay, like, if you wrecked your police cars in the pursuit of this guy, we'll pay you back. Here's some money. We're going to sell, off, sell nice. off their stuff and we'll pay you back. Just remember, Uncle Sam takes care of you. <laughs> Uh, what else, Josh? Uh, well, the uh, we talked about how the Marshal Service is set up within the 94 districts and uh, the 3953 
3,953 deputies. Um, but how do they get there, Chuck? Apparently, they used to have an exam, and then now they use the standard federal career intern program, which is, takes a couple of years to get you to make sure that you're not just some jerk who could fill out an application. Oh, yeah, or wants a free gun. Yeah, so you gotta you gotta pay your dues for a couple of years, and if you've got the right stuff, then you uh, have to go through a 17 and a half week training course at the U.S. Marshals Service Training Academy in Glencoe, Georgia. Did you uh, did you know the Marshals Training Academy was here? I didn't, and I didn't did even you know, know there was such a place as Glencoe, I Georgia. Didn't, actually, and it's down. It's sort of halfway between Jacksonville and Savannah. Oh, okay. It's down on the coast near St. Simons. It does ring a slight bell. I think it was. Not even a place until they put the thing there. Oh, gotcha. And they named it Glencoe. I, I, I don't know if that stands for anything, but I don't even think that was a legitimate town until they set up a 1,600-acre campus Gotcha. that has its own zip code. That is very neat. Yeah, it's big. Um, Chuck, if you want to become a U.S. Marshal, there's some... Now you can't just fill out an application. You have to go through the, the um, training program. But even to get into the training program... To on the U.S. Marshal track, there's some um, some qualifications you have to have. You have to be a U.S. citizen. Check. You have to be between the ages of 21 and 36. Nope. <laughs> um, you could still. I could. Uh-huh. I better hurry up. Uh, be in good physical condition. I, I would say I'm not, and you're you're so so. So so. Would you say you're in good physical condition? I would. So you could pass these. These tests, I could. You could do the fifty chin-ups and run the mile in a certain time. Over a, <laughs> a long enough period of time, I could. Okay. Uh, a bachelor's degree, check. Uh, w- three years experience in law enforcement or other qualifying job experience, no. Uh, a valid driver's license, yeah. And and a good driving record, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm good. I'm well, good aside road. from the age limit, then you're fine. And the physical condition and the experience. <laughs> so pretty much, I'm a U.S. citizen and I have a driver's license. Right. That's what qualifies me. Uh, there's some famous marshals besides Tommy Lee Jones. And Bat Masterson, who I mentioned. Did you mention him? Yeah, I said I just kind of threw him in earlier. Was Marshall Dillon a real person? I, Matt Dillon? Or was he just a fictional character on I Guns I think phone? he was a fictional character. Pretty sure. Uh, TV baby. Wyatt Earp was real, though. Yeah. And Virgil and Morgan Earp, his brothers, they were all marshals, as was Wild Bill Hickok. And Wild Bill is the tie that binds the Marshalls podcast and the Sword Swallowing podcast, because he brought in a Cowboys and Indians setup to the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Ah, look at you. He pops up in both. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Douglass had no idea that he was a U.S. Marshal. No, and the Marshal for D.C. too, which I imagine is probably a pretty busy district. Yeah. Did you see... Oh, you don't watch Louie, do you? No. He had an episode where his daughter dressed up like Frederick Douglass for Halloween. Oh, wow. <laughs> and apparently that was what he wanted to be when he was a kid one year, so he he brought it back years later for a show. Really? Yeah. Nice. Um, What else, Josh? They have a most wanted list that is different than the FBI's. Yeah, remember they they caught that one dude in Mexico. Yeah, they caught one of their own dudes in Mexico that that went to the other side, I think, too. Oh, yeah, down in, in Juarez. Juarez. Uh-huh. That's right. He, like, went renegade and I turned into so. a drug-dealing murderer. <laughs> allegedly. Okay. Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly. 
These days, Josh, the director is a, is a lady named Stacia Hilton. Uh-huh. And it was a really controversial nomination, actually, by Obama. How so? Well, she was... Um, She's a socialist? Uh, yeah. She has um, had strong ties to the private prison industry. Oh, yeah? And the U.S. Marshals is also responsible for awarding contracts to build federal prisons. Oh, yeah? So basically it was one of those deals where they're like, hey, she made a lot of money as a consultant for all these companies. You appoint her, and she's going to give her friends the uh, in the private prison industry fat contracts. So she had petitions going around, basically, but the nomination did go through. I see. And apparently it was kind of sped through. Huh. So all those people out there, we like to call out folks on both sides. Yeah. We're doing it. <laughs> Good going, Chuck. No, thanks. Um. And also, I should say, there's between 200 and 400 marshals that have died in the line of duty since 1789. That's and, not a lot. No. Um, and the first was a guy named Robert Forsyth. And he went to go serve court papers for a civil case to two brothers, Beverly and William uh, Allen. And uh, he took the Allen brothers aside to say, hey, I don't want to embarrass you, but here's some papers. And rather than come with them, they ran upstairs, locked themselves in the door. When they heard um, Forsyth coming up the stairs, they shot through the door and hit him in the head and killed him instantly. So here's the first first marshal shot during the line of uh, duty in Augusta, Georgia. Yeah, and I actually saw that he was the first law enforcement officer ever killed in the line of duty in the United States. Yeah, and he wore sense. like powdered wigs and everything too. It was like old timey colonial. <laughs> yeah, seventeen hundred. Well, just just post colonial. So that's it. That's U.S. Marshals, right? That's right. They do a valuable service, and now you know what that is. <laughs> Thanks to Chuck and his law enforcement crush. Uh, you know, you you and the grabster. <laughs> you guys are kindred spirits for sure. I do watch cops. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. I mean, not like, I don't know when it comes on, but if I'm in the right mood and I'm channel surfing and I'll see it's on like nine times in a row, yeah. I'll watch five or six of them. Do you ever watch Real Stars of the Highway Patrol? Uh, Yeah, Real Stories. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watch all those shows occasionally. Not. I just want to point that out. This happens like once a month. It's not like I know when they are. I don't schedule my TV. I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> and then Emily always busts me and is like, oh my God, how do you watch this? All right. I was like, well, these people make me feel better about myself. <laughs> that would make you a fan. Yeah. Um, if you want to learn more, and you, I'm speaking to you, the listener now. Um, if you want to learn more about the U.S. Marshals, you can type in Marshals, 1L. I was looking up that show, In Plain Sight, and even on the USA Network site, they spelled Marshals with two L's. Which is a name yeah. of, a, of a person. Yes, it is. With two L's. Um, so it's M-A-R-S-H-A-L. I got it. Yes. Um, you can type that in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which means it's time for listener mail. That's right, Josh. And this is a little Kiva-related thing. You want to tell everyone about Kiva real quick? We have a Kiva team. Uh, it's Kiva.org. K-I-V-A. Uh, right. And it's a micro-lending site where you can go on and lend uh, 25 or more bucks to people in developing countries. They use it to um, ostensibly keep their businesses afloat and grow. And basically, you're fighting poverty and all sorts of other problems through micro-lending. And what, what's our goal here? 
Our goal is to get to, I think, 600,000 or three quarters of a million. I think 750,000 by when? The end of the, this year? Okay, yes. Yes, we're supposed to get to three quarters of a million by the end of the year, yes. And we have to thank uh, Glenn and uh, Sonia for kind of heading that up. Yes. Our fans who, who set the goals for us because they're smarter than we are about figuring out if it's attainable. Yeah, <laughs> they boss us around. They do. Uh, so anyway, this is from Aaron H. in Denver. Hi, guys. Wanted to write in and let you know how glad I am to support uh, Kiva.org along with you. I had found the site before your micro-lending podcast, but didn't completely understand it until then. Uh, since the date of that podcast, almost two years ago, I've made 26 loans, and I'm a member of the Stuff You Should Know lending team. Nice. Uh, the other thing I wanted to share with you is that I just started volunteering with Kiva. I applied uh, over a year ago to be on their volunteer editing team, and they finally had an opening last month and invited me to join. Long story short, they won't let me leave. Please send help. <laughs> My job is to get the loan descriptions directly from the field partners and then edit them before they go live on the web. Kind of cool. Yes. Didn't know that they did that. Took volunteers like that. Uh, we edit for grammar and clarity and also check to make sure that the loans uh, details are correct. I usually edit around 10 to 25 loans per week, and I love knowing that when I hit the submit button, I'm directly improving someone's life. And that is from Aaron H. in Denver. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Pretty cool. She's given money, and she's loaning her time and expertise. That is very cool. Very neat. Um, if you want to learn more about Kiva and microlending, you can listen to our microlending podcast or episode. Um, you can also uh, check out our Kiva team, kiva.org slash team slash stuff you should know to join. That's right. Um, and uh, let's see. You can also tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can check us out on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And you can also send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join How Stuff Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?